If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. People can change anything they want to. And that means everything in the world. Show me any country and there'll be people in it. It's time to take the humanity back into the center of the ring and follow that for a time. You know, think on that. Without people, you're nothing. Without people, you're nothing. Stoke the fire. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to yet another installment of Stoke the Fire, hopefully your new favourite podcast. Well, we're not even that new anymore, are we, Jesse? As always, Matt Stocks, Jesse Leach, here from our transatlantic rooms across the globe. Um, where are you today, dude? You're still on tour with Slipknot. Where does today I, find you? Yeah, today is a day off in Memphis, Tennessee. Could have gone to Graceland. Could have, yeah, but didn't. <laughs> have you, have you ever, do you ever do stuff like that when you're on the road? Do you do the full-on touristy stuff ever? I, I usually would do stuff like that, but this tour is very limited. We're not really allowed to go to public spaces at all. We're very quarantined and tested every day, so it's it's very strict. So I don't really do anything except for ride my bicycle and get takeout food. It is what it is. The Paul Stanley approach, as we were saying last week. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah dude, it helps. It helps my head. Oh, there's a delay. There's been some really good trails in this in this run. So if I didn't have that, I'd be stuck in a parking lot all day. So it's great. So last week was pretty intense, wasn't it? And and we you know kind of got into mental health in quite a lot of detail. And and we've been doing that throughout this month. In fact, we had on Nick Helm, a comedian from the UK, and one of our listeners, uh, Dan Lucas, both sharing their you know beautiful stories and journeys and what they've been through and overcome. And last week it was just kind of me and you checking in with each other, me talking about some of my recent demons and um, we're going to keep the mental health awareness theme running throughout this month we're going to hopefully be joined in two weeks by ginger wildheart who is actually a good friend of today's guest as well so they'll go quite nicely back to back and today's guest before we bring him on there's just a few things i want to say about him on a personal level Um, on a professional level he's a very well respected promoter operating out of new york city Um, jesse you've actually been on a couple of his shows on uh, on the boats that he puts out across the uh, is it the hudson river that they go out on in new york yeah it's really it goes around new york city it's actually incredible because you get to hear great music you get to watch the city light up at night it's in the vibe there's awesome it's amazing if you're ever in new york city and you see one of those concerts you gotta go it's awesome the rocks off cruise um that's the name of his company rocks off jake snuffnarowski is the guest and yeah he worked at wetlands famous New York venue. He actually booked the final week or two weeks of shows at CBGB's before that venue closed forever. He was in charge of the final bill, which is amazing. And I met Jake in London in 2014, I think was the year. Maybe he'll correct me in a moment when we get him on. But he'd moved over to work at this venue called the Brooklyn Bowl. There's obviously one in Brooklyn as well. That was the first. Um, And we just became fast friends. And not only that, but this guy And I'm not unique in this, but for me personally, he did so much for my career in the short time that he was in London. Um, He introduced me to this, you know, very well-respected agent in the UK 
And he then put me on my first ever tour with Less Than Jake. And then he'd later go on to put me on tour with like Sublime, House of Pain, Steel Panther, Zach Wilde. And all the touring that I've done is a direct result of my friendship with Jake. And there was, I'm sure he won't mind me saying this either. There was another lady who worked at the Brooklyn Bowl called Christina. And she then went on to become this agent's assistant. And she's now an agent in her own right as well. And again, like I think because we were jake's two kind of closest friends when he was in london during that time and before he left i don't know whether he consciously did this but i have a feeling from knowing him that he did he seemed to make sure that the pair of us were looked after Uh, and this is kind of just one example for me of how caring and generous and amazing this dude is he's such a bright spirit in this world and has done so much for so many people he's just you know selfless with the love and time and you know money everything like if you were down out and you know needed the shirt off his back he's the kind of person that would give you it he's just one of my dearest and best friends in the world one of my favorite people in the world and i know that after this chat's finished a lot of people are going to have their lives i think changed for for the better because this dude is just He's an unbeatable, unbreakable spirit and um, an amazing force and presence in in the world. And and he currently finds himself in Yellow Pines, Idaho, and we'll find out, I'm sure, why he's there along with everything else um, from right now. So without further ado, let's bring on my dear friend, the legend, Jake Snuffnarowski. Come on down, Jake. <laughs> Da-na. Thanks, Matt. Um, I, I would assume I'll probably cry. A little mm-hmm. during this podcast but i've already started uh, from that intro so thank you um i that was conscious by the way making sure that you and christine were both looked after um, I, I thought as much and yeah you've just done so much for me and just as a friend man when you left london it you know it's no coincidence that around that time i broke up with my ex-girlfriend my life kind of you know came unraveled to some extent and i missed having you around on a day-to-day basis so much and continue to and obviously we've stayed in touch and we've done a couple of these now as well you've been on my podcast life in the stocks i've been on yours tuesdays with jakey and i knew when me and jesse started this show that you are definitely going to be somebody that we would you know eventually get on and it seems pretty perfect that it's today because today jesse two two years and two days ago from this moment we're recording now um jake was institutionalized (laughs) And, and and that was the start of his ongoing recovery um, and redemption. Uh, and yeah, it's just, I mean, Jesse, you've heard the podcast I did with Jake. You also checked out, as, as I told you to, because I'd heard it and was blown away by it, the podcast that Jake did with Toby Morse from H2O. And I think it's safe to say we've had some amazing stories on this show. This guy's life story is unlike any other, isn't it? It's unbelievable. I'm just as God made me, Mr. Stokes. <laughs> <laughs> Great reference. Some people have called me a twisted little fruit, but I contend I am just as God made me. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you you obviously spent a lot of time living in New York, Jesse, so I'm presuming your paths have crossed and you've spent time with Jake at a show that he's promoted or just around town you've seen each other. Has there been a few you know, social exchanges between you guys preceding this? That I remember it was a brief encounter on the boat. He, he introduced himself, and uh, it was a friendly exchange, but that's pretty much it. I, I'm i not as much as a social butterfly as I used to be, um, and when I do go out, I try to be somewhat incognito. So, yeah, I've only met him quickly in passing. It was very nice, and 
we have a lot of mutual friends and I've heard nothing but great stuff about him. And yeah, your story from what I've heard is insane. So I can't wait to get into this, man. Uh, speaking of mutual friends, I was with Vaughn and Kenny last week. Oh, there it is. My 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 dads. I love those dudes, man. They've been with me since I was like 22 years old, managing me and protecting me. Love those guys. They're my family, yeah, man. They're, they're great. They came to the H2O shows that I did in New York a couple of weeks ago. Oh, killer. Um, that must have been fun. Yeah, and it was great to see them. Um, I love those guys. And yeah, I've seen you come on our boat shows before and, and yeah, introduce myself. But obviously, I didn't want to get all up in your shit. Um, because you just came as a music fan and nobody even asked you to put me. I didn't know you were coming any of the times you've come because you didn't end up on our guest list. And uh, I don't know, maybe you had bought tickets. You seem like the kind of guy who would. Yeah, for the most part I do, unless I know I can get to a VIP section away from people and I do that. <laughs> right. Which we don't really have on the boats. Very, exactly, that's why I like very it. Pr very proudly, no VIP sections. No, I love it, man. The whole thing's VIP, you kidding me? That's, that's an amazing place to see a show. It's awesome. Yeah, exactly. And uh, yeah, I know the people would probably expect knowing you that you'd come on certain types of cruises, like the probably if someone were to guess, they'd be like, oh, I'm sure he came to see every time I die or on the Bad Brains boat. But the one I remember was you came to see Lucero, um, who are oddly enough from Memphis, where you are right now. Oh, that's guy. funny. Yeah. Um, and Serendipity all around. Yeah, right. And um, speaking of mental health and suicidal thoughts, which I know you guys talked about last week on your podcast. Uh, that night, two different people jumped off the Manhattan Bridge during that cruise, one during the beginning of the cruise and another during the end. And they jumped off separate sides of the bridge. We actually got held up on the departure for a minute because police boats were coming by. And then um, I remember during that. the cruise, somebody also jumped off the Staten Island Ferry. And that was the first time I had encountered any of those things. And to have three of them on the same night was heavy. Um, I wasn't really in the depths of my suicidal urges yet though at that point for, and for most of my life i just assumed that my death would come via suicide uh, which we can get into later but but yeah the guy who jumped off the staten island ferry this ferry was crossing in front of us and then within moments um there were helicopters hovering around and i ran up to the pilot house and i asked the captain what happened and he got on the radio and found out and this is a bit of morbid humor kind of, but I said, well, what's going to happen? And he's like, well, based on how the tides are now, he's going to wash up in Staten Island tomorrow afternoon. And they're like, they're not going to get him. You, when you go into the, into New York Harbor, especially down by the tip, Southern tip of Manhattan where the East river and the Hudson river converge, there's such swirling currents that the captains have told me many times, we've had a few jumpers on our boats over the years, but guys who are just doing it to be goofy. And, um, but you don't jump off the top deck of the Staten Island ferry to be goofy. And, uh, Sure as, sure as day, the next time I was on the boat, I asked the captain if he knew what happened. And he said, yeah, he washed up in Staten Island the next afternoon. Wow. Um, yeah, so that was heavy shit. And obviously, we didn't tell anybody on the boats what happened. Some people came up to me and were like, what's all the sirens? I was like, ah, who knows? You know, yeah. you don't want to bring down a whole vibe of a room in a show by letting that news out. I, dude, I remember that. I remember thinking, you know, is it like a terrorist thing? Because, you know, all New Yorkers like... You automatically go to it's it's something's bad's gonna happen. But I remember that dude. That was nuts. There was cops and helicopters and boats everywhere. That's gnarly. Three people in one night. Yeah, the two people wow. who jumped off the Manhattan Bridge survived though and got fished out of the water because they jumped really close to the edge. Um, wow. Which is good for them, you know. Good for them. Well, you maybe know? that was just a cry for help, or maybe they didn't know they had to go higher up. I don't know. That's yeah. crazy. Either way, good for them because I've heard that. 
you know, especially about jumpers, that the minute people jump, that all the stories of people who've tried to commit suicide by jumping, that when they've survived, the number one thing they say is that as soon as I jumped, I wish I could have gotten back on that ledge. Wow. Well, that's kind of a nice, well, nice is the wrong word, but it's <laughs> it's a, a decent and apt segue into, um, if you don't mind just kind of jumping in here, Jake, um, the reason you wound up in this facility in Florida two years and two days ago is because you were found holed up in a hotel in Vegas um, where you'd been for, was it three weeks you'd been off the radar before they finally tracked you down? Three weeks, yeah. So to back it up just a little, like I was, when I got back from London, I felt like I didn't fit in New York anymore. And the reason I moved to London is because I was just tired of my life and tired of running rocks off and, and just felt like my head kept hitting a glass ceiling. Like there was only so big the shows I could do could get. And it felt like Groundhog Day doing the same thing every year and booking the same bands. And it just, I, I ceased to get any sort of joy from that. So when I got the opportunity to move to London, I did. And I thought being part of a bigger team would be better than doing my own thing. And that didn't work out so well in London, the venue anyway. I came back to New York and I was in a real funk. Um, and I did the 2017 cruise season. And then in 2018, um, I bought a motorcycle in California and just basically took off. And I spent all my time riding my motorcycle. And not long into that, I knew I was very depressed, but um, an old friend of mine, uh, Dick Dale, the guitar player, king of the surf guitar, he passed away somewhat suddenly. I mean, as suddenly as an 82-year-old can pass away. He, was, he had been sick with cancer for a while, but nobody knew how bad it was. And, um, and you two were he, extremely close, right? Extremely close, yeah. I had been booking his shows in New York since 1999, and we became really tight. And I used to go spend a lot of time at his ranch out in Joshua Tree and, and um, became like a father figure to me. And when he passed away, it was just the straw of trauma that broke the camel's back. And I was at a Tony Robbins seminar, oddly enough, in the Los Angeles Convention Center and a little break happened and I went out and checked my phone and saw the news. I didn't even go back inside. I just went to my motel, got on my motorcycle, drove it to the airport, went back to New York because I was running a cat convention, which is a whole other story. But I went back there to deal with the cat convention. And as soon as that was done, I got back on the plane, got on my bike and just proceeded to ride to try to find a way to kill myself. Like I was, I was totally done and I knew that was what I was gonna do. There was no question in my mind. And I spent about six months riding my bike and just doing crazy shit, riding no helmet, you know, 120 miles an hour through the desert, just hoping tragedy would happen. And um, was looking for every time I'd hit these windy roads, was looking for a cliff I could ride off of. because so I wanted to make it look like an accident because I didn't want to leave my friends with the burden of knowing that they maybe there was something they could have done. But by that time, I thought that I was such a burden to my friends, I wouldn't reach out to any of them. Um, and eventually one day I just woke up and it, it wasn't a particularly bad day. I had just, I had ridden, I was up in Canada in Banff national park, having a great time, went swimming in the freezing cold Lake Louise one morning. And that, that afternoon I rode back into America, rode my bike to Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, oddly enough, first time I'd ever been in Idaho where I live now and, uh, just drank a few beers I think I bought a six pack at a gas station that night, stayed at a Hampton Inn in Coeur d'Alene. And I woke up the next day, I was like, this is it. And I just drove right to the Spokane airport, booked a one-way flight to Las Vegas, left all my bags and camping gear and stuff attached. 
people just left it in the parking garage. Sorry to interrupt, Jake. There's just a little bit of um, interference there. Is that the cable coming in and out or something? Sorry. Uh... If worse comes to worse, we could just use the laptop mic, but see how you get on. Hello? Hey, yep. hey, hey. Can you hear me okay? Sounds yep. good. Yeah, man. Okay. So yeah, I just left my bike in the parking garage at the airport and booked a one-way ticket to Las Vegas. And then I called this, this prostitute who had become my girlfriend in Vegas. And she picked me up and we went out that night and partied. And uh, I told we, I booked the Cosmopolitan and I gave the clerk a hundred dollar bill and said, I wanted a really high floor cause it was our, uh, it was our honeymoon. And uh, they gave me a nice suite on the 46th floor. And I was like, that's perfect to jump off of. There's no way you're going to live through that. And I, next morning I woke up, I was very hungover and she was gone. And I put my laptop and my cell phone in the safe. And uh, every few days I called down to the front desk and would extend my stay. And I just, spent pretty much every day just weeping in my bed by myself. And at night I would just go out on the balcony and try to get the courage to, to jump off. And I, I spent a lot of nights like with, with my body leaning over the balcony, my feet, not even on the ground, just like, just trying to, just trying to find the courage is what I was thinking then to like, let my head dip down far enough so that I just fall right off. Um, obviously never did. And then, uh, after, after a few weeks of that, I finally, like, I went downstairs to watch football in the casino and had some drinks. I just started uncontrollably weeping and the bartender asked what was going on and hotel security came over and eventually I went up to my room and, and I called a friend, a good friend of mine who six months previous, I had talked out of his own suicide basic attempt. He was, he was leaving his house to go try to jump off the Brooklyn Bridge because of a failed relationship. And he's the one I called and I just told him what was going on and told him where it was. And then um, a few hours later, the police broke down the door to my room and uh, hotel security had already visited once and the police had visited another time. And I talked my way out of it um, and told them I wasn't well, they, suicidal. They'd come around because they you know, got inclination that you were going to do something to harm yourself. Yeah. Well, when I disappeared, I had told someone where I was before I disappeared and, um, so they called the hotel security and then they came up and told me that someone was looking for me and worried about me. And I think I had a gorilla biscuits cruise on the boat that I had just totally blown off, which if you know me, I'm not going to blow that cruise off. Um, and I, I told the woman, the hotel manager, security, whoever it was, I was like, that's my ex-wife. I'm going through a divorce. That's why I'm here. How dare you fucking disrupt my privacy. And I got all indignant. And then a few days later, another, this other woman I had been seeing, uh, <laughs> another prostitute. Oh, that's not how I met this one. So that just, that was happenstance. But, um, she, she called the police. Um, so then the police showed up and, and I think when the police show up and they hear that someone's suicidal in Las Vegas, they probably expect there to be empty bottles strewn about and the, the room a mess, but everything was perfectly tidy. The only weird thing was that it was like noon and all the shades were drawn, but I talked my way out of that one too. And then I went down to the hotel lobby and I was like, look, I came here to not be found going through a bad divorce, blah, blah. So I take my name off the registration. So then my friends all just assumed I was at another hotel, that I had moved to another hotel. And, uh, you know, friends were calling literally every hotel in Las Vegas and the police and trying to find me. And eventually I, eventually I made that call and, um, the police came and they 
dragged me out of the room basically. And, and they brought me down to the cab stand and they told the taxi driver, I'll never understand why they didn't like take me in a psychiatric lockup or something. And, uh, but they told they put me in a taxi cab and told the cab driver to take me to the airport. I told them I'd just go home. And then as soon as the cab pulled away, I gave the guy a hundred dollars and I was like, take me to the hard rock. And, uh, I knew they had a high tower at the hard rock and, and I got there and they'd only put me on the fourth floor. And I was like, that's not high enough to kill myself. Um, and then Peter Shapiro, who was the owner of the Brooklyn bowl and, and had been the owner of wetlands where I kind of started my New York city booking career. Um, he got, a, he literally got on the next plane out and was there at like eight o'clock in the morning. And, um, I went down in a lobby to meet him and I was just kind of like defeated that I, that my bid to kill myself had been upended. And, um, and he went back up to the room with me and I had a shower and we went out for lunch and he took me to see the Australian Bee Gees show. Um, Which is an interesting side note, because for those who don't know, uh, you were in a heavy metal tribute to the Bee Gees called Tragedy. Yes. And um, the only reason we went to that show is because it was a Monday and most shows in Vegas are dark on Monday. And that was one of the only shows playing. So I was like, let's go to that. And then then that night I flew to L.A. All my friends gave Peter strict instructions to make sure I was brought directly back to New York city. But Peter could see in my eyes that I wasn't suicidal anymore and trusted me. And I was like, I can't go home and face everybody in New York right now. So let me go to, let me go to LA for a couple of days and like get some sunshine on my face. Cause it was late October. And uh, I went to my friend Noah Chernin's house for one night. And then I went to Toby Morris's house for a night. <laughs> and then Toby and moon took me to the airport. And um, while, when I went to Noah's house, I got off the plane and, and we went to his house and uh, he took he took me to In-N-Out first and we got a burger. And and then he like he was like, what's in your bag? Do you have any drugs? And I was like, no. And he opened my bag and he was like, wanted to go through my bag, <laughs> found a climbing rope that I had bought at REI and I had practiced tying nooses with. And I had bought that about six months before and I'd like practiced hanging myself a bunch of times. And he just took the rope and threw it in the trash. And when we got back to his house, he, he let me take his him and his wife's bed. And I just slept for like 12 hours. And then I woke up the next morning and Noah had called uh, called Music Cares, which is a, a music business charity that um, helps people who don't have health insurance or that just need 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 help. And um, he put me on the phone with someone there when I woke up and uh, we talked for like two hours and she asked what was going on. And uh, she was like, I think I have a place for you if you'd be willing to go to a inpatient psychiatric facility and um i was like yeah fuck yeah and then about an hour later someone from that place called me on the phone and then asked if i had only told the woman from music cares about all the death because she asked if you lost anyone recently and i told her about dick dale and my my old friend larry block who was a guy who started the wetlands and sold it to peter and my friend rodney who who you know matt from running for rodney who was my best friend who died suddenly in 2016. I just let all that pour out. And then the woman from the treatment center in Florida was like, when she called me on the phone, she was like, I heard about all the death trauma. Um, has there been any sexual abuse? And I just, I just started bawling. And uh, I was outside with Noah and his wife and child. We were at a golf driving range. Just, they were trying to get me out of the house and active. And I like ran around the back of a dumpster had like fell down to the ground and started crying and being like, yeah, there was it's something I, I not really told anybody ever. I had kind of danced around the issue with some friends and every, every time I would try to bring up 
the sexual molestation stuff, people would look at me like it was my fault. And it, it, that those few incidences taught me that it was something to be ashamed of and not hide it even further. And then, uh, so I went to Toby's house that night and the next morning they took me to the airport and, uh, I got fucking loaded on the plane. And then someone picked me up in Orlando, Florida and took me uh, to a place called the guest house in Ocala, Florida, where I spent the next 60 days um, doing intensive, you know, psychological treatment. Um, Yeah, it was a, it's a, you know, it's a treatment center made specifically for people with suicidal depression. Um, and yeah, I spent, I spent 60 days there and then I, you know, and now here I am, <laughs> that's, um, that's an incredible questions? story. Yeah. That's an incredible story. I, I do have questions actually. Um, I, it just sounds to me like there's a lot of a tortured soul. That's what it sounds like. And the fact that you spent so much time thinking about suicide and planning for it, that's a long time. Cause usually in cases that I've dealt with or people that I know, or even myself included, there wasn't that much time to really speculate and think about it and sort of almost fantasize about death. And the deaths obviously were triggers to you, but this sounds like, and you mentioned sexual molestation. It sounds like it's your past, your childhood. Where does it all come from? Is it, is depression just a mental thing for you or is it trauma based? Yeah, or is it I, both? I mean, I, it, it's hard to say, but I've had it as long as I can remember. And I remember vividly being suicidal as a kid when my parents would go out for the night. I would I would imagine um, committing suicide when they came home in front of them so they could see it. But that, at an age before anything that I that I can remember happened to me. So the sexual stuff came later. Um, mm. And just I think I think I was just prone to depression. Um, and yeah. And then everything else that happened after that just exacerbated that depression. Um, and then it just made me more steadfast in my, in my conviction that my life would end by my own hands one day. And, you know, two years, it's been two years and two days since I've, since I've thought that would be the case though. Like I literally haven't entertained the thought of suicide since I've thought about it only to think about why I'm not thinking about it. Oh, but I've I never been like, oh, I could, okay. Yeah, I think, I think I'm gonna end up killing myself eventually. I can't even understand how those thoughts existed in my head before and how rationally I thought about them and how I was like, yeah. I, I, at a certain point I was like, I, I wanted, when I took off in, it was April of 2019, when I took off on my bike specifically to go find a place to kill myself, I thought I'd do it pretty imminently. And I, I thought I was going to find a, I thought I was going to find a log cabin in Colorado with strong support beams. And I was going to hang myself in one of those rooms. That's exactly what I thought. And the more I was riding my motorcycle, the more I didn't want to die, but I would only not want to die when I was out riding my bike, even though I would take my helmet off and ride like crazy. I didn't want to die in those moments. Those were the only times I really felt free. And then I would end up checking into a motel. I would go to the, a local bar and have a few drinks. And I wasn't drinking to excess. I have throughout my life plenty, um, which we can touch on later. And I'm sure we will based on what Matt's been going through lately. Um, But I, during that time, I wasn't drinking to excess. I would just drink a few beers 
And then when I would be back by myself alone in a motel room, that's when I would break down and want to die again. And then I would wake up the next morning and get on my bike and go riding again. And that was the only thing that really made me want to live. But then in a weird way, like art saved my life because I really like Jack White and I like, I love his band, The Tours, and they had put a new album out. And I, I just happened to be going through Aspen and I went and I saw Booker T and the MGs play. And there was a poster for The Tours coming up that they were playing there in two weeks. They were playing July 4th and 5th. Um, and the Belly Up in Aspen is a, like a 500 capacity club that gets huge acts to play there by charging like $250 to, to rich people with more dollars than cents, you know? And um, so I was like, well, I can't kill myself before I go see the rack on tours in a tiny club. And uh, then when that came and went, like there was a great episode where I, I stole a car to get home on July 4th in Aspen because um, I couldn't get an Uber. And I came out of that show really drunk. And uh, I was trying to get an Uber. Then I was trying to hitchhike. And then I tried to steal a bicycle because I was staying in a hotel that was like five miles outside of town. And uh, I stole a bicycle from an apartment complex and I started riding it, but the tires were flat. So I, I wiped out after about a hundred yards. Then I just threw the bike into some bushes. And then I, then I hit there. I was, I don't want to give too many details, but it was a delivery truck that was all wrapped in the name of the, the restaurant that it belonged to. And I just opened the door and found the keys. And I, I was so drunk. I had to cover one eye with my hand to try to get back to my hotel. Um, and I drove that, I drove that home. And then the next night I met this woman and ended up like getting in this relationship with her, which is really bad news. Um, but I, it gave me some weird reason to live it was like, Oh, somebody likes me. And um, I wasn't getting laid during that time at all. Cause I'm, I'm sure I was setting off a very, toxic energy you know so like i would when i would go out to bars i would want to meet someone and try to connect and like have a reason like i was looking for any sort of reason to want to live and i couldn't find it and then quentin tarantino's movie once upon a time in hollywood was coming out that summer so i was like well i can't kill myself until that movie comes out because i really need to see that film like that's just one more thing before i do before i die and i ended up seeing that six times in the movie theater that's a long ass movie too it's almost three hours long so I would watch that movie intently and steadfastly. And uh, then when that ran out, the raconteurs were playing two nights at the Hammerstein Ballroom in New York. So I was like, I, I'll make it till then. And it was after those shows. Then I had every time I die on a boat and I went on those three every time I die shows. And then the day after that one is when I took off with the with the absolute intention of like, I'm never coming back to the point where. I went, I cleaned my entire apartment out. I used a little label maker to print passwords on my laptops so that when I died, my friends could like sort through what they needed to. And um, I brought all my valuable possessions for the most part, except for some guitars and artwork to like all these books and clothes and, and, and everything I had in my apartment that I didn't want to just end up in a dumpster. I brought to like Goodwill and donated. I brought all these books to a used bookstore and they were like, Oh, we want to give you the money for these. And I was like, that's all right. I don't need it. Where I'm going, I don't need money. Um, and during that time, I gave away all the money that I had saved in my life too, which was quite a significant amount, um, over $200,000. I just started, I was just like Venmoing random friends and giving money to GoFundMes and Kickstarters just because I was like, I don't have kids. I was like, this money's just going to get tied up by the courts when I kill myself. So let me just get rid of it and like send it to good places. That's how, that's how serious I was that like, I wasn't coming back this time. 
and how selfless and generous you are even at your absolute <laughs> lowest moment and you know what you were saying on toby's show about not wanting to kill yourself in certain ways because you didn't want to you know have a maid find you or you know or like your friends have to deal with like that reality so you wanted to make it look like an accident isn't it there, were, there, there were nights i was up on that balcony at the cosmopolitan trying to jump off but they fucking put me above the pool and i was like if i land and splatter on the pool in the middle of the night like the cops are gonna have that closed as a crime scene and i'm gonna ruin people's vacation because they won't be able to get to use the pool <laughs> that's the shit that was going through my head um you know and I'm glad it did, right? Because if if it hadn't been for those thoughts, then I might have actually gone through with it. Does um, it does it strike you now? And first of all, I want to say it makes me really happy to hear what you said earlier about not wanting to die, still thinking about suicide, but in a different way now with your perspective shift, which I can completely relate to in my own life. Because uh, I've had bouts of real hard depression where I sincerely wanted to die. And I haven't felt that way for years as well. And one thing that always struck me, and I'm curious if it struck with you, have you thought about it in an existential way of like, there's a reason why you're still alive. There's definitely a, you've never thought of that in, in any way. Cause I think your story, just from, just from what I've heard so far, this story can be very therapeutic to people. And I think that personally for me, I think you're still alive to continue to spread awareness and help people with this type of a situation with their heads. So I think it's beautiful that you're so honest and so open about this. And I, I commend you for that. But so you haven't really thought that maybe there's a reason you're alive. No. And, and, and when I was 15 years old, I made my first trip to New York city and I fell off the roof of a six story building. I was playing hide and seek like an idiot. And um, when I came back um, to Massachusetts where I grew up, all my relatives were like, there's a reason you're still alive and that didn't kill you. And they were all very religious. So I poo-pooed that right away. They're like, God was looking out for you. And I was like, ah, come on. I'm not going to believe that baloney. Then I set myself on fire on stage in 1999 um, in a fire breathing accident with the disco biscuits of all bands in Las Vegas, oddly enough. Um, and I could have very easily died there and a couple motorcycle crashes. I never really felt like there was a reason I was still alive, but I felt like there was things I could do with my life more so now than those other times. But now like before when I couldn't kill myself, I was like, ah, I guess I have to live. But now I'm like, I get to live. Like mm. that's the difference now. And I, I guess I embraced life throughout most of my life and, you probably get into different stories, but like I said yes to everything and, and I invented more things to say yes to, you know, like fucking crazy adventures and solo travels through South America and, and Asia got myself in a really hairy situations just for the fuck of it, probably in retrospect, cause I wanted to live or I wanted to feel alive in some way, but I was never really happy doing those things. So I was never like, Oh my God, I get to, be on a three-week motorcycle trip in Thailand. I would wake up a lot of mornings being like, well, I'm here. I guess I'll go do something wild today. Or like go bungee jumping off a bridge in Victoria Falls, Africa with no fucking safety regulation, shit like that. But I wasn't doing it out of like, I would post it, things like that on social media to make people think I was like this wild and crazy guy. But, you know, now it's something I touched on with Matt via text recently. 
now I make all these crazy decisions because I want to, and I do it with a very clear head because I want to feel, I, I want to experience more of life. I don't need it to feel alive. I feel alive every day when I wake up, most days anyway. Some days, you know, just like everybody, I wake up and I'm like, oh God, it's fucking raining today, great. But most days I'm like, yeah, what do I get to do today? What do I get to do? And that's how I ended up like, when the pandemic hit, when I, when I got out of the treatment center, um, after like two months of being out, I was like, I wonder if my motorcycle's still in the airport garage in Spokane. So I flew to Spokane and my bike was still there and it started and I broke it out of the garage because I didn't want to pay the fee. It had been like, I don't know, over a hundred days and it was like $20 a day or whatever it was. And I was like, I, not only did I not want to pay it, I couldn't. So I just like snuck it out behind another truck before the, the little lever came down. And, um, and I, I brought it to a motorcycle shop where I stored it. And when the pandemic hit, I, uh, I knew pretty quickly that like I was fucked because I didn't have, I, I didn't go totally broke before I killed myself or before I thought, tried to kill myself, but I didn't have much money at all. And I had like gotten a booking, a bunch of shows. And I was like, all right, I'll land on my feet. I have a way to make money. And then the pandemic hit obviously. And it wiped out any chance of me making money in the only way I know how, which is booking concerts. So I was really worried about what was going to happen to me financially. So I spent what little money I had left to get a, on a plane ticket to Spokane where I knew my bike was safe now. And I had my camping gear and I was just like, I'm just going to ride across the country and camp and, and just fucking wait until this whole thing blows over and figure out what to do. And then I went to visit a friend uh, who lives in McCall, Idaho, which is like six hours South of Spokane and been a dear friend that I had, I had um, booked shows for tons over the years, Greg at Donito singer from the bouncing souls. And um, he had been telling me forever, like, Hey, come stay with me and Shanti, come stay with me and Shanti, like anytime you want. So I was like, Hey man, I'm going to, can I come out there? Um, I actually had been planning on seeing them before I, I parked my bike and headed to Vegas. I, I thought I was going to see them a few days later. And I actually remember I texted him and I said like, Hey, not going to make it to your house. I've got some business things. I have a business opportunity. I have to chase down in Vegas. And um, so I went to visit him and I just kind of got stuck there in this, like they live on the side of a mountain in the middle of fucking nowhere in Idaho. It's a town called McCall has 3000 people or what I thought was the middle of nowhere. There's 3000 people, two grocery stores, a couple of burger joints. And it's like 106 miles from Boise on a two lane road that goes through these canyons. And I was like, this is the most remote existence I can fucking imagine. And I stayed there for a week and then took off on my motorcycle for a week, then went back to them for a week, took off again. Then I took off on a six week ride, kind of thinking like, I'm just going to keep riding until I figure out a good situation for me to live in. And like silly me, I, when I got back from that six week ride, I kind of got chased back there by the forest fires that were happening out West. I got back to their house and I was like, why have I been looking for a place to live? Like I have one, like, and I wasn't staying in their house. They have a little one room cabin on their property that I was staying in. So I said to them, Hey, can I, um, can I just like rent this place for the, for the winter? And they were like, yeah, I would love to have you here. And, um, so I just hunkered down all last winter and just really started to, even more so get my head together. Cause I was still like, I came out of treatment, not wanting to die, but I had to figure out how to live. Like I, I had no idea how I was going to live. Um, and then during that time, just before I left the city, I ended up um, 
making a fair amount of money selling masks with all different designs on them. So I had some money in the bank by that point, And I knew I could afford to like live through the winter and the pandemic. And I was like, all right, I'll just live here until spring of 2020 in which, at which point I'll 2021, I'll lose 21. 20, yeah. 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 It was like, I'll live there through the spring of 2021 and then I'll get back to booking shows. And um, then spring of 2021 came and it still didn't look like there were going to be shows happening. So the weather cleared and I started riding my motorcycle around some more and just checking out different places. And then I came to this town where I am now called Yellow Pine. And uh, I'd been working on a farm in McCall, which I took that job, not really for the money. So it's just $15 an hour, which, you know, is a lot more than nothing. But it did, that job didn't feed my soul at all because I was basically like doing landscaping work on a farm and weeding and stuff like that. And the, it was this octogenarian couple um, who just, grew greens to sell at the farmer's market in McCall. And I was just on my own every day. And I was like, this isn't fun. Like I wanted to find a job so I could meet people and talk to people and kind of get back to being socialization. And then one day on my day off from the farm, I rode my motorcycle to Yellow Pine, which is, I thought McCall was in the middle of nowhere, but McCall is in the middle of nowhere. But to get from McCall to Yellow Pine, you have to ride a 52 mile dirt road over a mountain pass into the middle of a national forest where there's an old abandoned gold mine. And there's a tavern there called the Yellow Pine Tavern. And I went there for lunch and uh, after I had a burger and I talked to the owner a little bit. She's a really crotchety 74 year old woman named Lorin. And I started asking her some questions like, what happens in this town? And she was like, not nothing. Why? <laughs> and I was like, how do people make a living? And she's like, they don't. They're like retired or on disability or they're hiding out from the law, basically. And I was <laughs> wow. like, uh, okay, so who comes to the tavern? And she's like, I don't know, hikers, campers, fishermen. What the fuck? Why are you asking so many questions? And I was like, okay, I'll shut up now. And I sat on the couch and I was reading a book. I spent a few hours there and I just eavesdropped on all the conversations. And I was like, this place is fucking wild. And I left there and like, I'm sure you guys have traveled plenty, Jesse. I'm sure you have, especially around America and the West. And like, usually when you find a town that doesn't have anyone in it, like there might be a dollar store and a couple of meth labs, but like not yeah. a cool <laughs> old, like, old gold mining saloon. <laughs> and, uh, and so I went back, I went back to McCall and I said to Greg and Shanti, I was, they were like, how was Yellow Pine? They'd never been to Yellow Pine. No one I met in McCall had ever been to Yellow Pine. The only reason I knew it existed is because on this motorcycle map I had, it said it was a cool little town to check out. And that if you're going to go, try to go the first weekend of August where they have their annual harmonica festival. So that was really the impetus. I was like a harmonica festival. Oh my God, I got to go check this out. But I wanted to check the town out when they weren't having their festival because I wanted to just see what it was all about. And then I went back to Greg and Shanti and I was like, that place was fucking magic. There's something about the land and the energy of the land there. You, you know, when you get somewhere, even if it's in the middle of a forest, you're just like, this place is cool. So I went back the following weekend for three days and I left my cell phone at home, which was really hard to do because obviously all of us are tethered to our cell phones in one form or another. And even though I was taking it to a place that I knew I wouldn't have service, it still felt weird to leave it at home. But I took it up. I, I took my bike up, left my phone at home and just camped for three days and went into the tavern every day and uh, just go into the tavern, have lunch and fill my water bottles. And I had said to Greg and Shanti, I was like, I'm going to get a job at that fucking tavern. And they were like, how do they even have jobs there? Nobody lives there. <laughs> Only 23 people live in this town. 24 now. Spoiler alert, because I live here. <laughs> um, but I, on the third day, like, 
I was like, hey, Lorraine, I'm headed back to McCall today, but uh, I'm just curious, like, do you need help around here? She was like, help? What do you mean? And I was like, are you hiring? And she was like, you want to work here? And I was like, yeah, yeah, why not? And she was like, but you live in McCall. And I was like, yeah, but like, you know, that that road, even though it's only 52 miles, it takes three hours to get across because it's so rugged and narrow and winding over the mountain pass. So she was like, you're going to commute from McCall? And I was like, just and I use the term I remember very clearly. I was like, just book me on consecutive nights as if it was like a concert. I was like, just book me on consecutive <laughs> nights and I'll come up and camp. And she was like, uh, oh, OK, why don't you write down your phone number and I'll call you this week? And I was like, All right, she's never going to fucking call me. I, there's there goes my chance to live in this an even quieter town. And uh, that was on a Sunday. And then on Tuesday, I was at the farmer's market with the couple from the farm and my phone rang. And it was just some random Idaho number. And I picked it up. She was like, hey, this is Lauren. Were you serious about wanting to work here? And I was like, yeah. And she goes, all right, be here to Thursday at two o'clock. And you're going to work Thursday, Friday and Saturday, two to close. And I was like, uh, OK. And she's like, all right, bye. And I just rode my motorcycle back up there on Thursday and like just showed up. And I walked in the tavern and and she was like behind the bar. And it was it was the weirdest experience because she wasn't like, oh, you actually came. She was just like, oh, hi, Jake. Uh, all right, come back here. Let me show you how to use the register. And I just spent the whole summer working in this crazy fucking town and having wild and weird experiences. And that's a long way of telling the story of like, you know, I heard Matt say last week on the podcast that like, like without drinking, he wouldn't, his life wouldn't get to certain places. Right. And the nights out where you've been drinking. And I, when I heard that, I sent him a message and I was like, bro, that's not how it is. Like you get in a crazier shit when you stop drinking because you do it with clarity and with intention when you're drinking and you get into these things, you, you just do it because you're just following some sort of whim and some energy of the universe. And just, you're following yourself into trouble. And for all the friendships Matt said that he made because of nights out drinking, including solidifying one with you that night in Birmingham, when you guys were drunk, like you would have made much better and more solid friendships. And, and I'm saying that from experience, because I used to say the same thing when I, when I would be inevitably confronted with the fact that I drank too much tons of times over the years, I'd be like, yeah. And I just rationalize it. Well, yeah, if, but if I don't, if I stop drinking, I won't meet anybody or I won't get into situations where I end up booking a show. And then I look back and I'm like, I've cost myself more shows and more relationships with my drunken behavior than I've gained. Like all the good things in my life I have came from real honest connections I made with people while sober. And then, yeah, we had drunken adventures, but very rarely did it start with a drunken adventure. And then you wake up the next morning and you're like, this is my new best friend. More often it'd be like, why the fuck did I spend the night with that? <laughs> what did I say? Oh God. So like the, the idea of like, you know, feeling like you need alcohol or drugs or something to be able to lead a full life. And, and the idea of like, how did I feel like I was like, I was saved to live in some way. It was like, no, but I feel like now I get to live and I get to, you know, I get to kind of spread my vibe around. And this town has welcomed me with open arms. It's a bunch of fucking weirdos. And I showed up here in Yellow Pine and everyone was like, you know, what do you, what do, you do? Where are you from? And I, I was very very vague as to what I did. I told them I was in the concert business and I wish I had never even said that, but I, I said that only because I didn't know how long I'd be staying or anything. And they were like, what do you do in the concert business? And I was like, just production coordination stuff. And they were like, what's that mean? And I was like, just making sure like sound equipment shows up and the lighting 
equipment shows up like when it needs to be there, which is, you know, technically part of what I do. So I wasn't lying. Uh, but they would, they asked very quickly, like, do you get to meet the bands? Like, do you know a lot of musicians? And I was like, yeah, never. Like, I might as well work for fucking UPS. It's basically just a logistic job. And they were like, cool. And they never asked another question about it. And that felt so good to me because my whole life, I kind of created this character called Jake Roxoff that I came to New York City and I like was a wild and crazy guy. And a lot of that was born out of insecurity and depression and being like, and being an introvert. So if I was going to be out, on the town, I had to wear red pants and and dye my hair and get tattoos and be like, like literally, like I, I tried to become like a comic book character, if only to get over the fact that I didn't want people to know the real me. And then when I came up here, like nobody gave a fuck really about what I did. Nobody, I was so nervous that people would find out what I did as if they fucking cared, which of course I realize now they didn't, but I wouldn't tell anyone my last name. And then some people start asking my last name and I would be like, oh, it's Dominguez. Oh, it's Roberts. I would just make things up and people would catch on and they'd be like, wait, what is your fucking last name? And then I'd be like, what are you a fucking cop? What do you need to know that for? And I, I just was myself. I was just a snarky New York city kind of dick, but also in a way that endeared me to people. Cause I would do it with a smile on my face and a wink. You know, I wouldn't really lead them to think I was a criminal or anything, but it's felt so good to be here and just be able to finally be myself with no preconceived notions from anybody about who I am or how I could help them. Cause I used to feel like the only reason people came into my life was because they thought I could help them in some way. And a lot of ways that was, that was true, you know, because you meet bands and especially as a promoter, if you meet bands that are under the level of the shows you're booking, they want to impress you. And, and I'm sure you, you see it Jesse too with, you know, when you meet bands that they're like, oh, if I'm nice to Jesse, maybe he'll take me on tour with Killswitch or maybe Matt Stocks will play us on the radio or write about us when you're a journalist, Matt, or have me on the podcast. Like there's so much social climbing in cities, especially cities like New York and London, where we come from and had our career going on. It always felt like people had an ulterior motive to want to become your friend. And if you're already insecure and having imposter syndrome and suffering from depression, you're going to be hyper aware of that. And then you're going to start to feel like, well, does anyone actually like me? Does anyone take the time to get to know me? And then you're out at bars and you're drinking with people and they ask, well, how are you doing? And then when you open up and tell them, they're like, oh, I don't want to hear that. You know, not with those words, but they change the subject. If you're like, well, actually, I'm a little insecure about this. They're like, ah, ah, because they're insecure too. And nobody wants to like deal with it. And that's why you're out fucking drinking and doing cocaine in a bathroom together. Because you don't have your shit together. Like if you did, you'd be at their apartment, you know, playing a board game or whatever it is people, normal people do. <laughs> and actually sharing deep and intimate thoughts. But, but that's the kind of shit I can do now in a way that I never could before, because I finally, like I exercised uh, a lot of the demons that were inside of me, or at least I shine light on them. So they don't scare me anymore. I and mean, that's why I can come on here and be like, yeah, I was sexually molested and I was physically abused by my uncle. And like, and, and I, I did awful things to myself, whether it was, you know, drinking, drugging, self-harm, cutting myself with knives, like just, you know, tons of risky behavior, whether it be sexually or, or thrill seeking behavior. And like, it all got me to the point now where I'm like, you know, I get to live. Like I had a panic attack the other day driving up here. Like I, I finally moved here. I spent the entire summer, by the way, working five days a week at the tavern and then just living in the woods. I just, I was still paying for my house, house in McCall and there was nowhere to stay up here. So I would just, I would just set up a hammock in the woods and after I would get off from my shift, I would go and like sleep in my hammock and then 
and bathe in the river and just spend all this time with myself in a way that I would never have been able to do before I actually just decided to own my fuck ups and, and own my trauma. Like, and, and the I don't want to confuse things. Trauma isn't fuck ups, right? Like I didn't, nothing I did caused these men to molest me, you know? And, and for a long time, I felt like I did. And I felt like I earned it and I deserved it. And like, I remember like thinking when I was in, you know, 11, 12, 13, 14 is when a lot of it happened. And I remember thinking like, I was just becoming sexualized. And I remember thinking like, all I want to do is fuck girls but girls won't fuck me. So at least this guy's given me an orgasm. So it's not that bad. Right. And I carried that with me. I felt carried this guilt. Like I had tricked these guys into thinking I was gay or wanted it or something. And like, that's the stuff that I've owned is that like, is to realize like it wasn't my fault and there's nothing I can do to change it. So you might as well just, you know, deal with it and move on. And when I say move on, it's not, not forget about it. Um, I haven't forgotten about any of it. And I think about it probably more often now than I have in the past, but not in a shameful way. Um, and, and now because of kind of like dealing with that and shining a light on it, right. They say sunlight's the strongest disinfectant, you know, you can get light on your problems and, and talk about them. Like I did when I went to the treatment center in Florida. And then when I came out of there, I was on a podcast very early, which I never shared with anyone. Uh, cause I knew, the guy hosting the podcast, I didn't know anyone who'd listen to his podcast. So I went on there and did like a dry run sharing my story. And then I shared it again with Matt um, pretty much just a couple of days after before I left New York City. And that was the first time that I like let it out there to people. It was pretty much a secret that I was in treatment uh, when I when I was in treatment and I came back and most people didn't know. They just knew I had been away and traveling on my motorcycle. But if if it, only my close friends knew that I'd been in treatment. And I, I kept it secret for a while when I came back to New York, because I didn't want every conversation and interaction I had. Like I wanted to go out to lunch with friends that weren't super close friends, or if they were close, they weren't in the circle of friends who were trying to find me when I was missing. And um, I just didn't want to be looked at under that microscope of like, are you okay? Like, I can't believe I didn't know what could I have done? It's like, I just want to, I just want friends again. And it, that took a good six months before I was able to like be on Matt's podcast and share it. And then I did. And then I shared it with to on Toby's podcast. And like, now I get messages all the time from people being like, Oh, I heard, I heard you on this podcast or I heard you on that one. And like, thank you. Like, thank you for sharing and doing it so openly and with a smile on your face. And I, I guess a sense of humor and, and um, that's a long ramble, but uh that's all no, to say that like it's beautiful man yeah just to say that like if if i guess if there is something troubling you or you've got past trauma and there's stuff you're hiding like hiding it only makes it worse you know it's like it's like a pressure cooker or something like the more shit you jam in there eventually it's going to explode and i almost exploded and then somebody just like hit the release valve and took the lid off and spread me all over a plate and uh now I'm just kind of like not scared of anything that's in my brain. Like I'm still fucking crazy and I still overanalyze shit. And I, I wonder why people haven't texted me back, you know, which has led me to just stop texting people uh, to a large degree. And also I became a guy that also doesn't text people back. And there's a something I said to someone last year was like, just because you have my phone number doesn't mean you, you're worthy of my attention. 
or that you get my attention. And it's like, everyone I know has my phone number or people I don't know have my phone number. And I used to be the guy who like would try to reply to everybody and stay on top of every conversation. Even when, when there was no reason to do so, just to feel like connected with people. And the more I just let that stuff go and spent time with myself, the more I've been able to try to figure out what's important. And now I just try to focus on the things that are important to me. And if like, if, if you send me a message asking how I'm doing, maybe I don't feel like answering. And that's, that's not a diss to you, the person sending the message. It's just like, it's like, you know, maybe let's get on a phone call or something. Like I, I prefer nowadays, I prefer like long phone calls to short texts, um, except for like a very small close group of friends that I'm in, which we still fuck around and send each other memes and shit. But it used to be, I used to have hundreds of text threads going on with people. And now I have maybe a dozen at any one time. And it feels so much better to just be able to sit by myself and think and have my own, like, just get lost in my own thoughts. And sometimes those thoughts are dangerous. And sometimes, you know, I still feel like on a regular basis that I'm not worthy, that I can't believe I built rocks off into what I did, that like I fooled everybody into thinking I was a good concert promoter, which objectively I know that's stupid because I know people have been coming on our boat cruises for 19 fucking years, you know, and they keep coming back and they keep telling me how awesome they were and like, you know, the proof is in the pudding, right? So obviously I'm really good at what I do, but those demons still invade my brain all the time. So, you know, as much as I sit here being like, yeah, I'm happy and everything's great. Like it's great compared to where it was, but, but I'm also still pretty fucked up. And I do therapy twice a week and meditation really saved my fucking life. I meditate at least once a day, sometimes twice, sometimes three times a day, do crazy breathing exercises, try to exercise, try to eat right. I still have fucking horrible, horrible, horrible body image. I've lost 38 pounds since I was in treatment. Uh, I still think I'm a fat fuck. I see a fat fuck in the mirror. You know, like just keep hearing my mother telling me I'm fat and I have fucking man boobs and like so much of that stuff still gets to me or, or, or penetrates the outer layer of my brain, but I don't let it get all the way to the inside or I don't let it give me shame anymore, but I still think about it and I'm still conscious of it. And I know I'm not, I'm never going to like, I don't think just have straight, straight up just peaceful fucking days where I'm not, where I'm not suffering from some level of anxiety and depression, but I'm not going to let them control me anymore. And that's, I think, partly through all the treatment I made, but even after the treatment, I was like, that's just a decision I had to make for myself. And I, I would assume it's something that everybody can do. Um, if you give it enough time and actual hard work, cause I, you know, I had meditation apps on my phone for 10 fucking years, but I, I'd never used them or I would for 90 seconds, but it's like, you know, like, you know, what's the best way to meditate? Just fucking sit there. Don't do just sit there and close your eyes and don't pick up your phone do it for 90 seconds, do it for two minutes. Oh, well, what, do I need a chant, a mantra, count my breath? Just fucking sit there, man. Like, just, just do something, go to yoga, go running. Like just, you can talk about doing these things forever, but until you actually do them and string them all together, your life's not going to change. Um, and I've been fortunate enough to, to have the intestinal fortitude to just keep taking what I learned in treatment and just keep going with it. And it's, you know, they, it's self-care because you're, it's only yourself can give it to you. Your therapist can listen to you and she, or he, she, in my case, can give you advice and, and different perspectives, but it's like, it, it all comes down to you in the end. And like, you know how to be happy, choose to be happy. That's the only way it's going to fucking happen. Like, you know, if you, if I heard someone say the other day, if you can't be happy with happy with a cup of coffee, you won't be happy with a yacht. 
And it's like, so no, no matter how much money you make or spend or things you do or traveling trips you go on, like you're never going to be happy unless you tell yourself you deserve to be happy and make the choice to be happy. And then you can be happy with anything. Like, you know, I used to have a lot of money. I had fucking, you know, I never had to worry about money because I had done so well. And I was like, how am I going to live without money? And now I'm lucky if I make fucking $60 at a night at the bar here. But like people all summer long up here were like, Hey, you don't have to sleep in a fucking hammock. Like you can, you can come stay in our guest cabin or a guest house or you, you don't have to take a bath in the river. It's fucking cold. And I was like, yeah, but that's, I like that. And now I'm living in this house. Three different people in this town offered me their houses because they're going away for the winter. And I got to choose from three different houses to live in for basically free just to pay utilities because I came up here and I opened my spirit up and I, be, I showed people that I was a good person. They still don't know my fucking last name. Like not until I actually moved into this house that I actually tell Candy and Willie, the people who own it, they were like, what, what is your last name? And I was like, Sufnerowski. And they're like, no, come on. And I'm like, no, it's Sufnerowski. And they're like, what? And I had to show them my ID. And I was like, no, that's really my last <laughs> fucking name. You know, now I don't give a fuck if they Google it. And, and I, I was actually thinking in the shower earlier today, you know, like, these people have been so generous to open up their home to me. I mean, this is a beautiful fucking house I'm living in that I'm living in pretty much, you know, rent free until the end of April or something. And like, they just trusted me because, because of the, the genuineness of my spirit, I guess. And so I was thinking today, like, maybe I'll share this podcast with them, like let them know a little more about me. I certainly haven't told anybody up here what I've been through as far as mental health struggles go and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, just, you know, coming up to a place like this and just getting a fresh start and a chance to start over and, and being able to like, I only spend time now, like I said, spend time on the phone with people I really care about. Like I was just back in New York for two weeks, man. And I got to say, like, I don't miss fucking chit chat. Like, get me away from the yeah. fucking chit chat. Like, yeah. I will not make small talk with anybody. I'll make small talk with people in Idaho just about the weather or shit like that. But like. I would put myself in a couple of music business situations. I went to see Turnstile on Pier 17 and I made the mistake of going to the VIP area with the raised platform deck, which of course was other music business people. And like, hey, what's going on? Are you doing cruises and this and that? I was like, oh God. Oh. Like <laughs> the only time I want to talk about doing a cruise is if I'm booking a cruise with somebody. Otherwise, like, what do you have coming up? Or I'm sure Jesse, you get it like, oh, how's your band doing? Well, oh, who have you been on tour with? And you're like, oh, we were on tour with Slipknot. And before that even gets out of your mouth, like, let me tell you about what I'm up to. Oh, like, yeah. Ah, Dude, 100%. 100%. Dude, I, I got to interject because you've said some extraordinary things and things I can relate to and things that I'm like, wow. And to hear to hear this journey, to hear where you're at right now, um, I don't know. It just—it's so interesting. I feel like I'm—I'm I'm watching a movie as I listen to you. Like, what an extraordinary story! But my my takeaway from it is that I can relate to certain things that you're saying, and I love the idea of going to a small town and wanting people to know who you are without all the. Because I I am 100% that way with my life now. I don't really invite people into my life and my inner circle unless you see me as Jesse and not Jesse from. I don't, I can't do that anymore. I, I when you said the chit chat thing, I, I loathe idle talk. I loathe it. It makes my toes curl up. I would much rather talk about something deep or something substantial. And on top of that, I've exercised moderation. I've taken huge breaks from drinking and psychedelics and all the things that I, you know, I would do in my connections with myself, with other people, 
have become a whole other thing. Being on stage performing sober because I don't drink anymore before before performance. I I might have a glass of wine after. I'm doing very good with that moderation, but my life has been enriched so much more by taking away that element. And you mentioned the word connection, and I think that's a key word that I need to bring back around. I think a lot of people have addictions and become depressed and suicidal because there isn't a real connection. It's not that drinking party like vibe that you know I was a part of for many years too, where there's if if you're in trouble or you bring up something heavy and people don't want to deal with it, why are you even around people like that? And I had an aha moment in my life too, where it's like there's nobody there that gives a shit. They only care if I can get them into a show. They only care if I you know I buy the next round of shots. Like that, I was living that life too. And I moved out of New York City. I went north. And I started making connections with people without the Jesse from. They would. I'm a musician. Just I'll play locally. Like I kept it really basic, and I made these good friends. And like now they know who I am, but I I didn't allow them to know who I really was at first, and that really struck me. And I think all of these things that you're saying that's that's, that wasn't who you are. Exactly. That was your job, not who you are. And we get taught that your job is who you are, especially in America, right? What do you do? Everyone society exactly what yeah. do you do for years i've told people i love playing golf which i know is ridiculous but one of my first jobs was as a caddy and i learned to play golf no one in my family did but i, I taught myself to play with used clubs and i still play somewhat regularly not not this past couple of years because i can't afford it but people would be like you get out on the golf course and immediately people are like what do you do and i just say as little as possible <laughs> what and it's true, man, because like work, even to this day, it's like, yeah, I do as little as possible. And that's what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. Doesn't mean the, I won't do a lot, but as little as I have to do in order to like be able to survive. Well, there's a I think there's a profundity, like a real deep, profound thing when you do a lot of nothing. And during the pandemic, especially and Matt and I have discussed this on previous episodes. I really got to know who I was like I. I felt lost before the pandemic. I remember it tears in my eyes being like, I'm so tired of touring. I'm so tired. I want to watch the seasons change. Like that was my huge thing. I don't know why I was just fixated. I want to be slow enough where I can see the leaves change. And I had that during the pandemic and it's, it saved not just saved my life, but changed everything. And I see the world so different. And now being back out here on the road, I see this life so different. And I'm so grateful for the quiet little home that I have. And I don't know where I'd be if I didn't have that. I probably would have been burnt out at this point. So shit like that, that's a blessing, man. Like living simple is amazing. Such a blessing. And all all anyone wants to do is talk about productivity, not just in conversations, but it's all you you read about and you hear, you see that term in newspapers or, or wherever you get your information. It's like, did, where have you been productive today? It's like, what's that mean? Like, I feel most productive when I'm not doing anything. And in that way, the farm job, I actually liked it a lot, but I, I missed talking to people. But, you know, I'm no I'm no fucking historian, not by a long shot, but like for most of human being civilization, like nobody did anything. There was nothing to do like news, like the printing press, you know, didn't even come around until a few hundred years ago. Like there weren't even fucking books and newspapers to read. You just chat with somebody, fucking harvest some shit, hang out. Right. You just talk to people like no one did anything. You know, unless you were slaves building the pyramids or whatever. But for the most part, like there wasn't much work to be done. You just work. Your life was just kind of like maintaining your little patch of land and whatever. Just, you know, 
just being. That's what people did until the industrial revolution came. And then everybody's like more, 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 right? And like the whole idea of capitalism, I don't want to get off too much on a tangent, but like the whole idea of like people buying stocks and companies where, where you have to be more profitable every quarter. I was like, how does that not implode? I'm like, wait a minute. I was pretty profitable last quarter. Can I just be that profitable again? People are like, no, more, more, we need more. And I, that's doing a number on people's brains. You know, all of our collective brains as a society and as a whole human civilization. It's like, no, man, just people need to just get back to doing as little as possible. Like, and if that means billionaires cease to exist, well, fuck them, you know, because we're only getting rich mm -hmm. off the work that we do for them. So anyway, yeah, I agree. As little man. as possible. Yeah, I think you, you hit the nail on the head there, too, with the society we're living in now is so quote unquote connected but we're so fucking disconnected and i see it on a regular basis out here on the road you can see it when you walk in the dressing room everyone's on their phone we're not talking like that happens a lot see it out in the audience you know the song that you love comes on instead of sitting there and living it you're filming it for what like i it blows my mind and i've consciously made an effort to be on the internet less and sit alone in a park go for a bike ride like those things have changed me and i have more joy in my heart because i'm doing less i love it yeah yeah me too man like I, a long time ago i learned i love running and i i learned by mistake to go running without music because it was back in the days of ipods when you didn't have music on your phone but my my battery was dead but i had to get this run in like I didn't have time to wait for my iPod to charge. So I went running without headphones and without music, which I thought was going to be the hardest thing ever. And it just freed me. And I still do it to this day. I, I almost never take music out with me. But then I started doing that with walks. You know, I started doing a lot of walks in New York during the pandemic, but I'd bring headphones and listen to music. And then I was like, I need headphones. And then I was like, why do I even need my phone? I think the greatest thing people can do for themselves. People ask me a lot, like, oh, how'd you do it? Like, what can I do? I get a lot of like people asking for advice. And the number one thing I tell people to start is like, just fucking put your phone down, go outside, walk about half as far as you feel like walking and then turn around and walk home. You know, just try doing that without your phone. And people are like, oh, I, I can't. What, what if, what if, what if? And it's like, well, what if it was 1999? You didn't have a phone. Like, but just freeing yourself from from those devices and and look, I'm fucking. I still look at Twitter way too much and like, I, you know, I look. I spend way more time on the internet than I should, but way less time than I have in the past. And like, mm. you know, it's it's a it's a progression, you know. Um, but yeah, I think the number one thing that all of us can do to make our lives better is spend less time <laughs> looking at our phones and more time just connecting with people or with nature or just staring at a fucking wall, like. Remember, remember in school suspension? <laughs> All you did, like that was, they taught you that it was punishment to just sit there and do nothing. Like, or you're going to have to sit in this room all day and do nothing. And, and that's, that's what we're taught. Like you're only, you're only good for something. If you're doing something, or if you're consuming something, whether it's media or food or consumer goods, right? Like buying things, but it's like, no, nah, man, like the best thing you can do in the world is nothing for your own psychology. Jake, do, you, do you know how loved you are jake do you know that now do you see it now and and did you because you know everybody who i know who knows you like fucking adores you because of the nature of your character and what you put out into the world and if you walk into a room you know you light it up um when you were at your lowest 
did any part of you acknowledge or recognize that you were appreciated or was it too hard to get over that hurdle because you are trapped in you? Because what I've been learning in the last couple of weeks from talking about some of my shit on this show and online is like, I see so much love in my life that I'm so grateful for. And I'm trying to like remind myself of that. But sometimes it is hard, isn't it? When you're in these head spots to not see how surrounded by love you are. That's a tricky question, man. Cause I do a lot of times. Um, and like, I just came back, I, I had been away from yellow pine for two and a half weeks and I came back here yesterday and, um, it was really weird because I called Lorraine and I was like, I'm going to come back from New York early. Cause I thought I was going to stay longer. So someone else was covering my shift last night. And I was like, I'm going to come back early. Can I have my shifts back? I want to work. And she was like, no. And then I had to go to the tavern last night for the first time ever as a customer. And with my social anxiety, like I don't like being in situations where I have to talk to people unless I'm in charge. So like being a bartender, you're kind of in charge and you can twist the conversation however you want it to go. I had to go in there last night and I was so nervous because I was like, I'm just going to have to fucking sit there and talk to people. And everyone was like, Jake, you're back. Oh my God. Oh, we're so happy to see you. And like, that made me feel so good. And it made me understand how loved I am just for being just a dude, you know, and, and, but also going back to New York, people were psyched to see me, but also I got to say, like, I was, it really hurt me that certain people were like, Oh, I can't get together today, maybe in a few days. And I was like, I'm not going to be here that long. And there's friends that didn't make time to see me that I know they love me. I fucking know it. It's a cold, hard fact that they love me, but it's still fucking ate me up that they wouldn't make time to see me and like rearrange their lives just because I was in town. And that's fucked up, man. That's ego. And I'm trying to figure out a way around that too. And it's just, I've been thinking about that shit for a long time. Like, why do I care? You know, why do I care if someone replies to my text today or two weeks from now, or they don't like, it doesn't mean they love me or don't love me. It's like, if I called one of them tomorrow and was like, yo, I need to fucking talk to you. Like right now, they don't, they all drop everything they were doing. Um, but that shit, that it, it, it's like like Ving Rhames said, right? In Pulp Fiction, it's pride fucking with you. Because you're like, you, you want to think that like you're important to everybody, but you're kind of not. And that's one of the most things that I, things that has been most important to me to learn too, that like none of this fucking matters, right? We're here. We're not going to be here. You know, some of us are going to leave art behind. There's going to be, Jesse's going to have a lot of records. You're going to have podcasts, books. You know, hopefully I, I'm going to have stuff that I leave behind, but like, people aren't really going to read it or listen to it that much eventually, eventually, you know what I mean? We're not the Beatles. We're not fucking Bob Dylan. Like you're not going to be studying us, you know, at Harvard 10, you know, a hundred years from now. And so especially like, if you don't have kids, which none of us do, there's a likelihood that in perhaps less so for Jesse, but you know, there's a likelihood that with me and you, Jake, in like a hundred years, nobody on earth will know who we are. No, like how many writers do we know from a hundred years ago? Like a dozen that we even talk about, but how many people, people wrote books a hundred years ago. And it, it's not, it's not that what you're doing doesn't have value, but it's just that it doesn't fucking matter, you know? And like, so if someone doesn't reply to your text, if someone doesn't like the song you wrote, like if someone doesn't listen to your podcast and if someone can't make time for breakfast, it's like, whatever, man, like, like water off a duck's back. It doesn't change how valuable you are, but the most important relationship you have in life is with yourself. So if you just be good with yourself and know that like, try to like, get to a place where you can just stare at a wall for an hour, you know, or go for a walk with yourself, then like, then everything else on top of that is gravy, you know? And I certainly like, I'm so much more enlightened than I was in the past, but I'm far from enlightened, you know? 
Like, mm. and I, I don't know that any, that anyone other than like outside of being a monk, right, moving to a fucking monastery, you're ever going to achieve enlightenment? Probably not. Probably those guys don't even, you know. Um, so like, just try to enjoy the little things, you know, and try to be like, okay, so I don't get to eat with so-and-so while I'm back in New York, but I get to eat with this guy and that guy and everybody who saw me give me big hugs. And, and, you know, the other thing is that like people in my life who need to know, know that I'm broke and people have been so generous. Like people have like all that shit I did for other people has come back to me when I needed it the most. And, you know, materialistically sure. But also like, like my friend Noah fucking, gave me a, gave me his bed and while i was asleep was frantically calling friends and emailing people being like how do i help my friend and got on the phone to music cares you know and then and toby make sure it made sure i got to the fucking treatment center and while i was in treatment people were sending me books and sneakers because all, all i had was literally the clothes i showed up with and like people were sending me books and fucking pens to write with you know and and journals and like everybody's really looked after me and that's how I know I'm loved and, and given me their time and attention, you know, and like when I need something, it's there for me now. And now I, I just kind of trust in the, in the universe in that way. Do you believe in karma, Jake? Because, you know, you said it came back around because, you know, you were so generous and so giving, not just yeah, with money, man. but with energy. Do you believe that is that coming back because you've paid it forward yourself and put that out there? Most certainly. Most certainly. Yeah. Um, why don't you why don't you share the story if you're if you're up for it about the second month in the center and how that came around because that just that just about breaks my heart that does and it's it's the most mine too, mine too man so i don't know how much you know about treatment centers but they're for-profit operations you know and they try very hard to get money out of people to spend time there and especially ones like the one i was at i i was fortunate enough to be at like a somewhat luxury one, right? It wasn't in Malibu. It was still in Ocala, Florida. Uh, but it's, you know, it's the one where John Jones went, um, former UFC light heavyweight champion. Uh, I'm only saying that because he said it in plenty of interviews. Um, usually you're not supposed to out people have been to places like that, but there have been the people, there have been others, you know, high net worth individuals or whatever you're going to call it at this place. And however I ended up there, was through music cares and they had a deal basically that the woman told me from music cares afterwards. I spoke with her after I was like, how the fuck did I end up there? You guys paid for that. And they're like, nah, well, they happen to have an empty bed and we have a deal with them. They know we don't have a lot of money. So when we send someone in need to them, if they have a space, they'd rather take a little of our money than have that bed go empty because these treatment centers too are only as good as the rest of its uh, inhabitants or, or patients or customers, whatever you want to call them, because sure you can have all the best, um, staff and therapists that you can have. But if, if there's not a supportive community around you, people who really want to heal, it's going to be pointless because a lot of what you do is group therapy. And then you're spending a lot of time with, you know, everybody had a roommate, there's no private room. So you're constantly talking to your roommate. You're constantly at breakfast and lunch and dinner with the other inhabitants. I don't even know clients. Like I think clients is what they like to call residents. Us Would there. it be residents? <laughs> residents. Yeah. Well, we you know, they, they told us plenty like, oh, you're allowed to leave anytime you'd like. It's like, well, yeah, but you have my passport and my phone and my wallet and my fucking credit cards and my cash. So like, am I? Um, so, uh, but yeah, I was, I was told 
like my my tenure there was for one month and music cares was like yeah we're gonna pay for a month and um just go there and like good luck you know and um i got there and and i'd never i had only done therapy one time before in my life because an ex-girlfriend made me um and I went to see this therapist and the dude broke me down hard and had me bawling and crying. And I left there like that guy's lucky I didn't kick his ass, you know, in that I was so mad at him. Then I was like, I'm never fucking going back there again. How dare he, you know, like brought up all the shit about my dad who had passed away a couple of years previous. Um, so I didn't I did not know what to expect. And I was kind of horrified. And we we went in there and I spent like. 48 hours in the intake room where they, they, every new patient who comes in, they, they, um, intake room is what it's, there was a separate facility, like a, a separate little house with two bedrooms and the nurses station. And they put everyone there because they test you for drugs and alcohol and they kind of like figure out what you're up to. And then they send the shrinks to come in and see you and talk to you. And before they kind of let you loose with the general population. So I was in there for two days. And then my first day, like they woke me up one morning. They're like, all right, breakfast. Now you're going to go to the main house. And there's going to be a community meeting, which happened every morning at like 8 a.m. Like you'd wake up, have breakfast at seven, go to this community meeting, which was everyone would hang out in the living room of this big house. And they'd tell you all the important things that happened that day or what was coming up or just where they'd share any information that you needed to know as a group. I think there were only like 30 residents or something at one time there. And um, then we went into the first group therapy and there was all this tape on the floor and uh, it was set up like a pie, like a pizza pie or something. There were like four strips of tape making eight slices and each one had a word in it. And it was like ancestors, pre-birth, birth, childhood, adulthood, whatever they all were. And it was this thing called the walk of life. And the therapist had like a staff, like a big wooden staff. And she was like, all right, who wants to do the walk of life? And today and everybody just clammed up, but I didn't know anything. I was just, I was new to all this. Uh, it was, it was like that old, you see in the movies when they're like ask for a volunteer in a military lineup and everyone takes one step back and the only idiot who forgot to step backwards is left as the volunteer. <laughs> so everyone else was just clammed up and I was like, yeah, I'll do it. And the therapist is like, are you sure? And I was like, yeah, yeah why not? And she was like, it can get pretty intense. Usually people don't do this till they've been here for a little while. And I was like, well, I'm here though. So fuck it. Nobody else wants to do it. Yeah, I'll do it. And I was like, what do you do? You know? And she was like, you're going to walk around the circle and you're going to put the staff in each segment. And you're going to talk about, tell us about what your ancestors were like, and then tell us about your pre-birth and like what was going on in your family and their household before you were born. Then what happened during your birth and then what happened during your childhood. And I spent two hours walking around the circle, which is the length of the the group therapy session that we would do every morning. And I was so, I was self-conscious because I was like, I'm taking too long. And then I saw other people do it. Everybody takes the whole two hours, but I just fucking literally let everything out in front of this room full of strangers. And like all this stuff I had never told anybody before making connections that I had never made before. Cause I was finally saying all this stuff out loud and I had to stop multiple times to cry. And the therapist was hugging me and people in the room were crying. And I was like, Oh my God, like, all right, this is, like this was so cathartic for me, but it was good to see that it was connecting with other people. And, you know, obviously there's like a performer aspect to me, which the weird, I was like, Oh, they're getting it. Cool. All right. I'm going to, yeah, I'm going to keep it going, you know, <laughs> um, keep that jam going. 
And, uh, but by the end I was a fucking puddle and I was a wreck. And throughout the day, a bunch of other therapists came up to me. They're like, we heard what you did today. That was really brave. And I was like, it was, you know, like, I, I just thought that's what you do in a place like this, you know? And it took me a while, it took me until I actually like went through a lot more group therapy sessions to understand that it was important what I did. And like bearing your soul like that is helps everybody else in the room. And, um, after like two and a half weeks, um, of being there, I was like doing everything I could. Like I was like, throw more assignments at me to my therapist. I was like barely taking any time to myself while other people were watching TV. I was writing in my journal. I was like, just let me, let, I want to extract every piece of value that I can out of this 30 days that I have in treatment. Cause I realized very quickly that like, I, this is an incredible opportunity that people are paying, you know, 40 or $50,000 a month for. And I'm like, I'm, I'm going to get the most out of it. Right. That was the fucking hustler in me was like, you, you guys are letting me, you're giving me all access to this shit. I'm going in fucking literally head first. And, um, a few weeks into it, they, they, every morning at group therapy, they would do a check-in and they'd go around the room and like, Hey, how are you feeling today? And it was everybody's chance to be like, I'm not feeling good because of this. I'm feeling good because of that. Just say whatever was on your mind. And I was like, I'm feeling pretty good with all the work I've done here, but I'm shit scared about having to leave here in 10 days, you know? And I was like, I don't know how I'm going to fucking function. Like, I don't know how I'm supposed to go back to New York city with everything I've been through and like, you know, pick up the pieces of my life. And, uh, I really, I started kind of crying and bawling the more I talked about it. And you know, the therapist goes back, Oh, well, what do you think of it? And I was just like, I, you know, I don't know what to do. And, um, then after that session, one of the people who runs the place came to me and was like, Hey, what's your, you know, you're here because of music cares, but like, do you want to stay longer? It sounds like we heard from what you shared today in therapy, you'd like to stay longer. I was like, I'd fucking love to stay longer. And they're like, all right, what's your health insurance info? So I was like, all right, here it is. Cause I, I was had health insurance at that time that I was paying for it. Of course, like health insurance companies do everything they can to not fucking pay for things. Um, I'm sure Jesse knows about that. Matt, you probably don't because you live in England with nationalized healthcare. Um, but they they called me back into the office like later that day. They're like, we called your health insurance company. It's not going to work. So you're going to need to pay X amount. Like we're going to give you a deal. And I was like, I I literally don't have that money. And I, I bet if I had made a couple of phone calls, I could have gotten someone to pay for it for me. But it didn't even dawn on me at that time to be like, I need this. And I was just like, well, I don't know what I'm going to do. And then then the next day in my private one-on-one -on -one therapy session, my therapist is like, you really need some more time here. And I was like, I, I don't, you know, I don't know. I don't have any fucking money. You know, I fucking, I, it's gone. And um, then that you gave it all away. Yeah. I mean, I told her that cause I told her everything, but I wasn't like saying that to get sympathy, you know? Um, but I was like, I just like, if I had the money, believe me, I'd fucking, I'd pay for it immediately because I realized how valuable it is. And then um, that day after lunch, when I left, the woman, the woman who started the place was just a fucking angel. Um, and I, I, you know, I, I promised, I had to promise I'd never tell anyone this. Uh, but I think that meant more about like not tell anyone else I was in treatment with at the time. Um, but she pulled me out of the lunchroom. And she was like, I, I heard you want to stay more and your insurance won't cover it and you don't have the money. And I was like, yeah. And she's like, all right, we never do this, but we're going to keep you here for an extra month on us. And she was like, 
you're such an asset to this whole community and the way you greet everyone in the morning and come in at community meetings and give people hugs, you, the feedback you give in group therapy to people, like we need more people like you here. She was like, so you, you get to stay for another month on us, you know, like don't fuck, you don't have to spend a dime. And, oh man, like, I I don't know where I, that I'd be where I am now if, if I didn't get that opportunity, but that's, that really was the, the first moment of like me really understanding that karma was real. And I, I know why she did that for me. And I, I know part of it was because I was an asset to the community, right? I was, I was a, a good model patient, but more than that, it was because karma exists. And for all the things I had done for other people, it finally came back around to me when I needed it the most. Didn't come in the form of concert tickets or, you know, a sports car or anything like that. It it, it was literally a life-saving opportunity. And then I doubled down and I was like, I, I worked even fucking harder. Like, you know, I don't, I don't mean to toot my own horn, but like the therapists there said over and over, like, we've pretty much never seen somebody like you who's just come in here and fucking taken the bull by the horns and decided that they were going to get better and made themselves better. And like, and brought other people up with him though as well. Right. (laughs) Yeah, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. And I always would like, if I saw someone sitting alone at a lunch table or they look like they weren't doing well, I'd, I'd always go right over for them and be like, you know, like, yeah, like Jesse said on last week's episode, tap them on the back and be like, hey, I'm here for you. And oftentimes they'd be like, I don't want to talk about it. And other times they'd break down and start crying and telling me what was on their mind. And then I'd be like, yo, you got to go tell your therapist this. Uh, I can't give you any advice because I'm fucking nuts too. But, <laughs> you know, don't forget, I'm, I'm here alongside you. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I. I gave it everything I could. And then when I got out, they found me a therapist that my insurance would take. And I don't think she listens to my podcast. So I can say like, I don't have the best therapist in the world. I'll fucking tell you that right away. And I don't think the best therapist in the world, you're not going to get it in New York city with any kind of health insurance. If the best therapists charge, they only take fucking cash. And that's, that's for a couple of reasons. The main reason though, is like insurance companies are awful to deal with. If you know anyone in the medical profession, they can tell you that. But also if you take, if you take insurance as a psychologist, then you have to take detailed notes and send reports into the insurance company every week after every meeting. So like your, your client may only be with you for an hour, but you're going to spend another hour doing all the paperwork associated with that patient. Whereas if you're just taking cash, then they deal with you and they make some notes and then they move on. Like, I don't think any therapist got into therapy because they want to be doing fucking paperwork and dealing with insurance companies. So it's not that the best therapists feel like they only want to take people who can pay them a fortune. It's that like, it, it, it fucks up their life and it fucks up. You, you, you spend all that time in therapy school or whatever you want to call it, getting your master's and advanced degrees so that you can help people. And you're not helping people when you're just figuring out how to fucking bill insurance companies. Uh, so yeah, I don't have the best therapist, but I went to see her for three days a week. I'm like, I have pretty shitty insurance and you know, you get what you pay for. Um, but I, I learned too, that therapy isn't so much about your therapist. It is to a point, but it, like you got to do that work in your own brain. And the th- the thing a therapist is going to do a really good one is going to push you into places that you're afraid to explore for yourself. And I, I'm lucky enough or 
I don't know if luck is the word or if it's just hard work, but I can unlock a lot of that shit myself. And I spend a lot of time in my therapy sessions now kind of like making my own connections and the therapist just kind of like laughs literally. And my down in Florida, my therapist would laugh often too. Cause I would just talk for an hour and then be like, yeah, so I'm probably feeling this way because of what happened <laughs> then. And because of this. Right. And they're just like, yeah, yeah. And of course <laughs> they, they do nudge me in certain directions. And when I'm trying to be closed off and guarded about something, they're like, Hey man, like you're not, you know, you got to go there and I'll be like, fuck, you're right. I do. And I have to admit a lot of like hard truths to myself. Um, but really like your friend can be your therapist. And, you know, if, if you're willing to be open and honest enough, everything can be therapy, right? Every conversation you have with people can. Um, but yeah, the fact that she oh, gave me those extra 30 days is literally life-changing. And, and I don't, I don't take it for granted. I haven't taken it for granted, but it's also just instilled in me too, to just be as generous as I can, you know, moving forward, both with, with, you know, what little money I have still, and also just with my time and, and, and hopefully empathy to, to my other friends or even sometimes strangers. Yeah. Empathy is a, a key word right there. I think it's a, a beautiful trait in a human being, but it also can be, you know, a bit of a curse too, which I've seen in my own life. Uh, but yeah, you, you're very self-aware and uh, from what I can tell, uh, pretty damn intelligent as well. And so far this conversation has been wild, but just very edifying and hearing your journey and seeing you would be so vulnerable and so open. You have a ton of fucking strength in you, dude. And, uh, I, that's super admirable. I, I definitely admire you very much for what you've told us so far. And I commend you. And I know for sure this conversation is going to help a lot of people. And it's beautiful. It's incredible, really. I think you should write a fucking book, man. This is wild, man. <laughs> Where are you at with the book, Jake? Oh, you are writing a book. Oh, shit. <laughs> yeah, I thought I would write one last year in McCall. And I, I got a 65,000 word outline done last winter. And then spring came and I was like, all right, I'm just going to keep writing. And then I ended up coming to Yellow Pine and that, dude, I got to tell you, there's going to be another book just about the summer I've had here. And I've taken copious, copious notes about all the characters I've met here and the situations that I've seen and that I've ended up in, I've ended up in some wild situations myself. People threatening to kill me last month. And because uh, I threw them out of the bar and I was like, well, you're not going to be able to kill me tonight because you're not allowed in here again. But, you know, come back tomorrow. You know where to find me. <laughs> but I was also like, they know where I fucking camp. And that night I was like, stressed the fuck out because I was like, you can't. There's nowhere to hide up here. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, there's the woods, but there's only how far you're going to go. And they know what my motorcycle looks like. But anyway, um, the whole reason I wanted to move to Yellow Pine this winter, not the whole because I could have written this book in McCall, but I was like, man, if I can have the opportunity to live in Yellow Pine, where there's literally like, it's gonna be three hours to get to a grocery store this winter. So like, there's no, they're not going to be any distractions up here. Tavern's going to be closed. There's like nowhere to go, nothing to do, you know? So <laughs> like a Ramon song, I'm just going to be sedated and writing. And the plan is to just, you know, just sit down and go through that outline. I put the outline together in chronological order of all the things I wanted to touch on. And then now it's just a lot of it I did in like really lengthy prose and some is just like bullet points of events in my life. And I'm just gonna have to go through and write it and then edit it. And like, so it should be ready in like 2028. 
Well, if you want to send me anything to just get any kind of feedback, you know that I'm always on hand to, you know, re read and, and share thoughts. And I'm I mean, sure I will. We've we've covered like, you know, such a small percentage of the story of your life as well. We've covered all the important stuff that I wanted to. Um, but, you know, your life is just it's it's a saga, Jake, and it's ongoing and, and continually, you know, like being so wild and interesting and full of twists and turns and that's the thing that i've always 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 loved about you is your lust and thirst for life and the experience oh, dude, of you know travel what it is, and relationships and dude it's fucking exhausting and like <laughs> i know when i got to mccall last year i was like i'm just gonna live up on the side of this quiet fucking mountain not go anywhere and not do anything and it's gonna be chill and like, I fucking end up in adventures by accident, you know, like my car <laughs> broke down in this fucked up town called Grangeville. And I end up stuck there for five days. And then I met this crazy motorcycle mechanic and like crazy stories that I've already written about. And I've ended up going back to that town. But then two weeks after that, a friend calls and is like, oh, I, my, I tried to drive cross country with my wife, the same friend who called Music Cares for me, Noah. He was trying to drive cross country with his wife to move from fucking los angeles pasadena california to woodstock new york and they they did it during that crazy fucking snowstorm in texas that happened last winter where all of texas froze and all the gas lines burst yeah. and everything and i fuck the guy fucking texts me and he's like we made it as far as phoenix and decided it's a really bad idea i think it was it was a really bad idea because of the storm but also because he was with his pregnant wife and three-year-old kid so they're like could you just could we just leave the car at the airport could you just can I just buy you a one-way ticket from Boise to Phoenix? And she just get the car to Woodstock, but I need it in four days. Cause that's when our shipping container shows up and like, I need a car cause we only have one. And I was like, yeah. And it's like, I didn't know what that was going to entail. And I had to drive through Texas in that storm. And I, I like, I'm sure I could have fucking stayed in a motel for a couple of days, but I was like, I got to get Noah's fucking car, you know? And like that led to all sorts of crazy adventures. And then like, I just come up to go, check out this town called yellow pine and now i live here and ended up with a five day a week job when i thought i was going to be writing a book and like you know it look i i'm not looking to trade my life with anyone but i think what like people just think like they see what i post on social media and stuff and all people just assume that it's like oh he's just out there having fun and it's like well yeah i make every day fun but like I can't, I'm like an adventure magnet, even when I don't want it, it just fucking comes to me and I've learned to embrace it, but it is fucking exhausting, man. Like sometimes I, I just, I'm like, can I just like live in the woods up here? And it's like <laughs> every, every, sometimes every time the universe around, has other just, plans for you, dude, that's yeah, what it is. More weird shit to fucking contend with. <laughs> I, really, I guess I would, I wouldn't have it any other way. If I did, I'd, I'd just lock myself up somewhere, but like, I'm sure this winter I'm like, yeah, all I'm going to do is just stay here and write a book, man. Like, I don't know what the fuck's going to happen. Like a helicopter is going to land on my house and I'm going to end up in the CIA. Like <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised. I'd be like, yeah, all right, fuck it. Let's go. Holy shit. Well, man, uh, uh, you're an extraordinary human being from just this conversation. And I, uh, I look forward to whatever comes your way. I'm going to start. I'm going to follow you on Instagram and start paying attention to it's incredible, man. And thank you for coming on here and sharing. I mean, just a small amount of this incredible life that you're still living. It's been an honor and a pleasure, Thanks, my friend. Thanks for having yeah. me on. I, uh, I gotta say, I really, really enjoyed the Vinny stigma episode. 
And oh my I, saw, God. I saw Vinny a couple of weeks ago in New York and I've been working with Agnostic Front for years and he's just one of the greatest human beings on the whole fucking planet. Like, yeah, I love that guy. I love him on the episode. I just had to bring him up. I don't know why. He's a, he's a he's, gem, isn't he? Because he's amazing. <laughs> hey, you fucking really. cocksucker. Hey, <laughs> hey no, nobody like it. And he's, he's so fucking smart, which most people... Most people don't don't understand it. Don't well, and so it. sensitive and sweet as well. Yeah. Beneath that tough, you know, persona is a very delicate, caring dude. Yeah, and it's not even a persona, you know. It's like that's the way people yeah. who grew yeah. up on Mulberry Street in the '60s and '70s. That's like it's just who they are. The world doesn't make people like that anymore. They sure don't. Real, real New Yorkers, that old school shit. It's it's a yeah. dying breed. Even the lingo and the accent, it's a dying breed. Yeah, it is. Well, they broke the mold with you as well, Jake Snufnarowski. <laughs> yeah, well, um, good. Good good for the rest of the people to follow. I tell you all the time, and I know you know, but I love you so much, and I look up to you so much, and you've been nothing but you know a, a guiding light and an angel in my life since the day we met. So I want to thank you I love you, you too, but everything. I got a challenge for you, Matt. Okay. I got a challenge for you. You told me, and you, you were talking on last week's podcast and via text, that you're going to quit drinking after Halloween. Mm-hmm fucking horseshit you're gonna quit drinking today like you don't you don't set goals like that and like i'm gonna quit wow. drinking later like that doesn't happen i did that for years all right you know you don't put that kind of thing off you want to know the easiest way to quit drinking matt start now don't take another drink yeah start today as civ said but yes the idea of like you're 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 just putting up an excuse for yourself you're you're conning yourself into believing that you're going to stop after Halloween, but you're giving it. You're telling yourself, "I'm not gonna. I'm gonna stop drinking after Halloween because it'll be easier then." No, it won't, because you're going to give yourself the same excuses. What you're telling yourself right now is, "Well, I have gigs this week," or "I don't. I don't know if that's it, but it probably yeah, is." Yeah, right? yeah. Like, I've got yeah, three in gigs, a row Halloween DJ. parties. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, it's not going to get any easier to quit drinking. And in fact, if you quit drinking right now and you don't take another fucking drink and you go and do those gigs, they're going to be some of the hardest gigs of your life. But like Jesse talked about stopping drinking when he's being on stage and how much more present he feels. I did the same thing when I was in tragedy. And I, I used to find myself I used to find myself on stage when I first stopped drinking or when I was drinking, I would look out in the crowd and only see the places where people weren't standing and I'd get angry and I'd be like, why aren't there more people here? And when I stopped drinking, I used to look at people in the eye and engage with them and I put on way better fucking performances. Yes. And that's what's going to happen with you when you go and DJ those fucking gigs this week. And you're not only am I telling you you're going to stop, but you're going to tell us too. And we're going to hold your fucking feet to the fire. We're going to stoke the fire on your feet <laughs> oh, by man. holding you accountable right now. Are you going to stop drinking right now, Matt Stocks? I give you my word and not just because it's you two, but because I need it for me, don't I? I need to do it for me. And... Do, yeah, I don't care if you do it for me. You don't, we don't hang out together anymore. So if you're a drunken, <laughs> annoying fucking asshole, it's not going to affect my life unless you show up at the tavern, which case I would hate to kick out a visitor from the United Kingdom, but I'd kick you right the fuck out of the tavern if you showed up acting the way that you used to act, that I used to act right beside you in london because we're a couple of fucking assholes man do you know, do you know wow. what you said earlier when you were talking about like um the best connections like me and you i think in the history of our social engagements i think we only got wasted together like twice once was the bronx show at the bowl and the other time was the rancid gig at hyde park and i'm fairly certain that every other time we hung out was on like day kind of excursions and you know we'd go for lunch yeah. or we'd go for a walk 
Um, and they we'd have were, a couple of drinks while you were DJing at the bowl, but then we'd go our separate ways because we lived in different parts of town. So yeah, we weren't staying out late getting drunk. We'd have a couple of drinks, but yeah, our our whole connection is forged in in sobriety, which is why or relative sobriety, which is why I think it's so strong. Um, okay. But yeah, you're, the thank rest you of the for, connections you, you make for the rest down. of your life are going to be forged in that sobriety too, and not relative sobriety, man. There's no, maybe Jesse can do it, but you can't. You said no. last week's episode that you're not an alcoholic, and I've said that a hundred times, but I am. I just don't like the term of it because of the company it puts me in, but just like you, I can't stop drinking after one drink. It, it unleashes some sort of monster inside of me. I cannot drink. That's no problem. I could have fucking 10 drinks, one drink today, and it'll lead to 10 and I'll wake up feeling probably suicidal again. Like there's that quote in the movie Oceans 11 where Matt Damon says to Brad Pitt's character, are you, are you suicidal? And Brad Pitt looks at him and smiles and goes, only in the mornings. And when I, that, when I heard that line the first time ever, I was like, I know exactly what he means, man, because I'm never suicidal when I'm drinking. I was always suicidal the next morning when I was fucking hung over. But... Mm-hmm. You're not you're, you're probably not going to have a glass of wine at that wedding in Marseille in 2027, but you're not going to want one then either. Like I haven't had a drink in two years. I work at a fucking bar. I never want to fucking drink when I'm working at the bar because I put on my future goggles and I look and I'm like, what, well, what's going to happen if I have a drink? Like, yeah, I, I can have 10 drinks and then not drink again for another six months or another two years. But why do that? You know, time is valuable. Your time in your head is valuable. And if you wake up hungover, the next time you wake up hungover, you're, that's that's the worst date you could have with yourself. Mm-hmm. You know, the worst connection you can have with yourself is when you're fucking miserable because of something you did to yourself. Wow. Yeah. So, dropping it. Mic drop. Right style. Wow. Welcome to the world of sobriety, Matt Stocks. <laughs> <laughs> Cheers. You know, wow. you know, ask Jesse about microdosing some mushrooms or whatever and some psychedelics and smoke a little weed every now and then. If it grows out of the ground, go for it, Matt. But alcohol no chemicals, is a fucking, no powder, no booze. A, yeah, man. It's a and no cigarettes either, okay? Deal. If you can. But well if if smoking cigarettes is gonna keep you from drinking, by all means smoke. No, I think it all needs to be a package. Um because you know one thing leads to the other doesn't it like with me i think a cigarette would be at this stage a gateway drug to a beer or or something else um yeah man i mean i i definitely think i needed that that's a very um do some other shit for yourself though and don't 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 you know don't look at it as like i i can't drink today look at it as i get to be sober Mm -hmm. you know and i get to be present and i get to you're going to get to watch everybody at these gigs this weekend acting like fools, but also they're going to be having the time of their lives because, because they can, you know, maybe they can have four drinks at the Halloween party and have a great time and, and you can't, but maybe they can't either, but it's not your fucking problem because you're not waking up with them tomorrow. Maybe one of them or three, if you're lucky, but (laughs) (laughs) I said something to Jess. I said something to Jesse the other day, Jake is like a kind of a final thought and something I need to kind of remind myself of is, I was sober on the tube on a Saturday or a Sunday. I can't remember which, but I DJed the night before. I hadn't drank. I was sober on the tube. And, you know, all my memories of, like, the last few months was being on the tube, hungover, hating every second of the experience. And on this particular day, on Saturday, just gone, I was sober as a judge, zero hangover. And there's an old blind guy going to get off the tube and i went over to him and i was like do you want a hand getting off i ended up walking him halfway around the tube station having this lovely chat 
And then as I put him on the next train, I just started weeping to myself because I was like, if I was hung over in this moment, I wouldn't have offered to help that guy. And I wouldn't have had this beautiful exchange and experience. And I was like, this is the kind of life that I want to manifest and, and live, um, you know, is with moments like that where I'm not dreading, you know, the possibility of something because I'm so socially anxious because of this hangover that's kicking my ass. And it was in that tiny little moment. I was like, this is what life could be. Yeah, mm -hmm. all it takes is a little spark, and then it's up to you to stoke the fire. This with guy. the help, with the help of friends. Yeah. Wow. I love you yeah. both, man. This was amazing. Don't do it for us, though, man. Do it for no, yourself. No, no. I'm know? just saying, I value your your kindness and your your loyalty. Both of you, yeah. you're like my dearest friends in the world. Love you I too, love buddy. You, Jake. Right, now I love you too, Jesse. Love you, man. What a, what a fucking episode. I'm honored. Yeah. This this is uh honestly this this life out here it's it can be chaotic it can be beautiful it can be really hard but uh today i i'm i'm gonna leave this conversation with a, a real spark and a joy in my heart so thank you yeah as am i thank you guys so much for having me on love you jake see you soon man <laughs>